Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Tens of thousands of counter-protesters came out to rally against hate speech in Boston last weekend. Some observers hope this is the start of something bigger for the city. Now that the marching is over, I'm encouraging them to look at these uh, persistent barriers of uh, systemic racism. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. After Boston and Charlottesville, we'll try to get at the root of racism, from a history of housing discrimination to an unfortunate image in a very public place. It was dedicated in 1959 by the Women's Club of Durham with all the best intentions. They didn't set out to create a racist, discriminatory mural set. We'll also get a lesson in how to perfect your backyard compost pile and hit the high seas in a massive antique sailboat, racing just like they did back in the jazz age. It's seeing the power, the majesty, seeing them try to maneuver around each other. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. It's now been two weeks since a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, led to violent clashes between neo-Nazis and counter-protesters. One anti-fascist demonstrator was killed, and many were injured when a car driven by one of the alt-right marchers plowed into a group of people. The events of the weekend were captured in a documentary by Vice News and HBO called Charlottesville, Race and Terror. The main subject of the report is Christopher Cantwell, a 36-year-old man from Keene, New Hampshire, who advocates online for what he calls a white ethnostate and promises violence. I'd say it was worth it. We knew that we were going to meet a lot of resistance. Uh, the fact that nobody on our side died, I, I'd go ahead and call that uh, points for us. The fact that none of our people killed anybody unjustly, I think, is a plus for us. Um, and I think that we showed, uh, we showed our rivals that we won't be cowed. His tone changed somewhat in a video he shot himself following news that the authorities were seeking him in connection with violence at the rally. I contacted the, the local police. I called the Charlottesville Police Department and I asked them, I, I said, I have, I have been told that there's a warrant out for my arrest. Um, and they, uh, they said that they wouldn't confirm it, but that I could find this out if I, <clears throat> excuse me. Cantwell has since surrendered to police. He faces two felony counts of illegal use of tear gas and one count of malicious bodily injury by means of a caustic substance. New Hampshire Public Radio reporter Brita Green has been following Cantwell's story and getting reaction from the Keene community. Welcome to Next, Brita. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't you start by telling us who exactly is Christopher Cantwell? Right. So um, Christopher Cantwell is um, in his mid-30s. He really wasn't a household name before the events in Charlottesville. Um, he's a white nationalist, and he is currently a resident of Keene, New Hampshire, which is a small city in the sort of southwestern portion of the state. Is he originally from Keene? 
He's not. Um, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which um, tracks hate groups, has sort of compiled more of a biography of him. And they say that he grew up in the New York City area, so out on Long Island. And what brought him to Keene, New Hampshire? So he was inspired to come to New Hampshire um, with the Free State Project, which is sort of a libertarian movement. Um, That group actually later banned him from their meetings because of his racist ideology. But um, that's why he originally came. There's a strong contingency of free staters in Keene. In the Vice documentary that has been watched by so many people uh, subsequently, he uses very incendiary, racially charged language. Um, it's a little unclear, though, what exactly he is trying to accomplish. What, what do you know about his his overall goals? His overall goal is to have a white ethno state. So he believes that we should create um, a state that is only white people. So no black people, no Jews, no immigrants of color. Um, and he suggested that, that perhaps New Hampshire could be such a place um, or, or perhaps somewhere else in the country. Um, so that seems to be his overall goal. Absent the ability to create that white ethno state, he's just trying to spread his messaging. So to make it okay to talk about white people as the best race and things like that. He put out another video uh, that he shot himself in which he, he tearfully wonders what's going to happen with him legally. What has some of the national reaction that you've watched been to, to Christopher Cantwell becoming this kind of overnight viral sensation, first for his participation in Charlottesville, this Vice documentary, and then this this kind of tearful video that he shot himself in which he basically says, I'm not sure what's going to happen to me. Yeah, you know, I think the national reaction sort of started out as um, shock and sadness um, and evolved into mockery. Um, I think that he originally came off as a as a very intense character that took a lot of people by surprise with the intensity of his views. Um, and then when he posted that tearful video, you saw a lot of um, m- more sort of, oh, look at this crybaby kind of reaction. I think the Washington Post also did a story about how he was kicked off of OK Cupid, and um, it became a bit more of a joke, I'd say. Mm. Now, you, you talk to people in Keene about their reaction. Of course, uh, it's a quite serious issue in the town that you cover. Uh, you ask them what it might mean for the town, what it me- might mean for race relations. I-, I have a couple of pieces of tape from from your recent story for NHPR. Uh, here's Dottie Morris. She's Associate Vice President for Institutional Diversity and Equity at Keene State. As an African-American woman, I've even had people, random people, just come up with almost like an apology uh, to and, and uh, voices of support. It sounds, uh, Brita, as though she's saying that that people are are actually reacting positively to her and in trying to m- make up for the fact that uh, Christopher Cantwell's in in that neighborhood, even if it's has nothing to do with them. Right. I mean, I think a lot of what she was perceiving was just people not even knowing what to do, being so shocked to know that this person was in their community and wanting to do anything that they could to. Um, you know, make her feel okay there. Um, I think the other aspect, what was so interesting about her role is that she works at this college and had, you know, it's right at the time when students are coming back. And she was having students, not a ton, but, you know, a handful of students reach out to her with real fears about coming back to school and um, 
what was going to happen to debate on campus, political debate, and whether their views would be respected, both conservative students and liberal students. Of course, not everyone was hearing the same kind of message of support that Dottie Morris was hearing. You, you also talked with Reverend Elsa Worth of St. James Church. She helped to organize a rally in the town's central square. She describes a bit of what happened. Usually the people who go around the square will beep when they agree with you and, you know, put their thumbs up. And the same was true this last Sunday. But what was new this time was that the people who didn't agree were really hostile. There was a lot of giving the finger, a lot of swearing, a lot of chanting Donald Trump's name. I'm wondering, Brita, if you're hearing that there's worry in the town that somehow hate speech has been emboldened in in Keene. Right. I think that that is something that she's definitely responding to. Um, So she actually was just participating in that rally. That was a small gathering. There's sort of a central square, like in a lot of these New England towns, where they have protests there almost every week. It's um, something that the town is kind of known for. So that was a small gathering right that same weekend as the rally. Um, But she's now helping to organize another event, a candlelight vigil. That'll happen this Sunday. And the goal there is to sort of push back against exactly that. So to say that we can come together and have a loving gathering um, where hateful speech is not okay. And we will stand up for that and sort of use our bodies and our voices to say that we're fighting back against what some might perceive as a new reality. I'm wondering what we know about white supremacist activity in that area of New Hampshire outside of Christopher Cantwell. We we can only assume that he's not the only person who espouses those views, although he's certainly the most prominent. Are, are there any other followers of his that you've become aware of or, or any other uh, neo-Nazi or white supremacist activity in that part of the state? Yeah, you know, I... Um looked into this extensively. My understanding of him is really that he is kind of a loner um, from talking with one of his um, few sort of, I I don't know if friend is the right word, but someone who is in touch with him in town um, and has worked with him in the past on other projects. You know, he said he really keeps to himself and that most people in town wouldn't even have known him before all of this blew up if he had been walking down the street. I did not find other evidence of any strong organized hate group in the area um, and didn't hear about other activity. It's really known to be a progressive area. um, And a lot of people told me they just couldn't believe that this was happening and that it really didn't represent Keene. So that's not to say absolutely not. There isn't anyone there. um, But I don't think that he has like a strong local following. And they're, as best that I could tell, there doesn't seem to be other strong groups that you know meet regularly or something like that. Brita Green is a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for the opportunity. That Vice News documentary featuring Christopher Cantwell is called Charlottesville Race and Terror. You can find it on our website, nextnewengland.org. Next, we'll head from Keene, New Hampshire, just a few miles down the road to meet a Lebanese American who's trying to clear up some misunderstandings about his religion. Many Muslim Americans feel besieged during the Trump administration, and Anthony Brooks introduces us to one man who's creating a space for dialogue. He calls it Ask a Muslim Anything. That's what Robert Ozzy calls these meetings, which he's been leading at community centers, churches, and town halls across New Hampshire. Wow, good evening. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you. 
Ozzy is a veteran photojournalist who spent years in the Middle East after growing up in New Hampshire, where there are very few Muslims. On a recent evening in the town of Dublin, in the southwestern part of the state, he told a small audience that he started these conversations a year and a half ago because of what he saw as growing Islamophobia. So he decided to address people's fears and questions head on. You know, I challenge you to ask me challenging. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Among the questions on this evening, why are so many people in this country afraid of Muslims? It's really interesting to me about why people are fearful. Ozzy traces it back to 9-11, which he says encouraged the false impression that that's when Muslims suddenly arrived in America, when in fact they've been here for centuries. And he argues that the fear was ginned up by the birthers, who falsely claimed that President Obama was a Muslim who wasn't even born in America. Chief among them, Donald Trump, who Ozzy says exploited that fear all the way to the White House. And he's running for president by painting a crescent on my forehead and a target on my back. And therefore, all Muslims must be foreign. All Muslims must be terrorists. And this is when I, when I started getting the calls. The threatening phone calls came with a hate mail. So this is personal for Ozzy. But he's convinced that hearing directly from an American Muslim like him, someone who reveres America's pluralistic traditions and his faith, is the best way to break down intolerance. A few nights later, at the community church in the neighboring town of Harrisville, Ozzy gets this question from Jack Calhoun. Why don't we hear more condemnation of terrorism in the name of Islam from the Muslim community? Because you're not listening. Ozzy points out that Muslims from Tehran to Istanbul to New York denounce the 9-11 attacks, while scores of prominent Muslims around the world have condemned ISIS. But Ozzy argues those stories are too often overlooked in the current climate. Muslims denouncing terrorism and violence didn't fit the kind of binary narrative that had taken hold in this country of us versus them. You know, there's this great prayer in the Muslim community saying, please, God, don't let it be a Muslim. I don't think you share that prayer. When you heard of Dylan Roof killing the worshipers in Mother Emanuel Church, I suspect there weren't very many of you saying, please, God, don't let it have been Christian. And yet everyone turns to the Muslim as though it's part of us. Ozzy acknowledges that Islam has a problem with fundamentalism, but he points out so does Christianity, and he accepts that too many Muslim cultures oppress women. Do I condone the condition of women in Muslim or most Muslim-majority countries? I say absolutely not, I don't condone it. I think they live a terrible life, and they live under terrible circumstances. And, and secondly, there is nothing in Islam that supports or embraces that kind of horror or terrorism. And he argues America has been complicit in propping up some of those regimes. The audience is for the most part sympathetic, welcoming Ozzy's effort to open up a dialogue about Islam. Well, I think it's essential. This is Tom Porter, a lawyer, conflict mediator, and a Methodist minister who teaches at Boston University's School of Theology. And I like his approach that he's just open to saying, I'm not going to tell you all the good things about Islam. I want to answer your questions. I want to be in dialogue with you. I consider him a soulmate. I really appreciated how he talked about the gentleness of Islam. This is Janet Selly from Keene, New Hampshire. It's really important to hear the other side and not just radicalism or the fundamentalists that he talked about. It's important to hear where the belief really stems from. 
For his part, Robert Ozzie says these have been tough years for Muslims like him. But he says the positive response to these evenings gives him hope. And it reinforces in me that these are really good people. The haters aren't here. You know, the, the haters don't come out. This is sort of a Muslim town hall. I never used that line before, but that's what it is. Ozzie says he likes hosting these Muslim town halls. But he says he looks forward to the day when they'll no longer be necessary. That's WBUR's Anthony Brooks reporting. Dialogue between people of different races or faiths has been difficult in the weeks following Charlottesville. And one of the trickiest conversations has been about the physical images of our racist past. While New England doesn't have many debates about Confederate statues, we do grapple with the history of white settlers and their relationship with indigenous people. Just this week, Yale University announced it would remove a stone carving of a Puritan aiming a musket at a Native American. As Jason Moon reports, another piece of public art in Durham, New Hampshire's post office has sparked a controversy. Let them know we're coming, so... Town Administrator Todd Selig is showing me around the post office in Durham, New Hampshire. Inside, the usual boxes, stamps, greeting cards. There's a long counter where postal workers help customers. But Selig isn't here to show me how the mail works. We're here to see a mural that runs along the top half of the walls inside the post office. I really can't miss it. It it almost looks like there are posters on the wall, but it's actually painted on the wall. Sixteen of these painted-on posters make up the mural. Each one depicts a different chapter of Durham's history. And they all come with stirring titles. Relentless Progress shows a train steaming through town. Steadfast Faith shows the Durham Community Church standing proudly. For the most part, the images are idyllic renderings of Durham's beginnings, painted by a local artist. It was dedicated in 1959 by the Women's Club of Durham with all the best intentions. They didn't set out to create a racist, discriminatory mural set. But to some, that's exactly what this is. At issue is one image in the mural that shows a Native American. He's crouched behind a bush, eyeing a colonial cabin. He's carrying a bow and arrows, and in one hand is a flaming torch. The image is titled Cruel Adversity. The painting is meant to represent the threat of Native American attacks on the town, including one in particular, the so-called Oyster River Massacre of 1694. During the raid, about 100 colonists, men, women, and children, were either killed or captured. It portrays the colonists as victims. Kathleen Blake is a member of the New Hampshire Commission on Native American Affairs. She says the cruel adversity mural is derogatory and leaves out the many acts of aggression committed by European settlers. I mean, it could be the other way around. The cruel adversity could be the settlers in the, in the garrison house rather than the Native people who already lived here. Blake and the Commission on Native American Affairs want this panel of the mural removed or covered. But Postal Service spokesperson Steve Doherty says that isn't an option. The Postal Service policy is, you know, this is something that was a piece of artwork that was given to us as a gift back in the late 50s. Um, and as now the curator of that art, our job is to protect it and preserve it for future generations. The Postal Service has offered to install interpretive text near the mural to provide some of the missing historical context. The job of drafting that text fell to Jennifer Lynch, Postal Service historian. After some research at the Library of Congress and consultation with local experts, Lynch submitted a one-page summary of historical context that could accompany the mural. I tried to show that it was complicated 
and there there wasn't one side <laughs> one side is always the victim, you know, and one side always the aggressor. It wasn't that way at all. It was a complicated situation, a, a lot of conflict. The text describes how an early period of peace descended into a cycle of attacks and reprisals, including the enslavement of hundreds of local Native Americans about 20 years before the Oyster River Massacre. Back in present-day Durham, debate about the mural has made its way into town council meetings. At a meeting last month, Councillor Feroz Katrak said the image was nothing residents today should be ashamed of. We should be taking pride in the Western civilization. We should be taking pride in our local history. And I don't think white males have anything to apologize for. The Durham Town Council doesn't have the power to do much about the mural since it rests in a federal building. But they did voice their support for keeping the mural with interpretive text. Some Durham residents, though, are asking the council to come out against the mural. Diane Tregay is a former social studies teacher from Durham. She told counselors how the mural has affected her classroom and her family over the years. Uh, My daughter, who is 30 years old, recently shared with me how she feared Native Americans from standing in, in the post office. Many of my former students, some of them your children, have shared their fear that grew from that image. For now, the issue is on hold. The Native American Commission hasn't decided if they're willing to settle for interpretive text. The Postal Service wants the Commission's input before they would install any text. The Women's Club of Durham, which originally commissioned the mural, is no longer around. But a pamphlet they published in the 1980s suggests they wouldn't mind all the attention the mural's been getting. The pamphlet asks, quote, What better place than the post office to ensure its display for the entire community and visitors? That's Jason Moon of New Hampshire Public Radio reporting. Coming up, in Boston, counter-protesters came out in force to shut down a so-called free speech rally by the alt-right. But can that activism show up to help bridge the city's real racial divide? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The scene at a so-called free speech rally in Boston last Saturday offered a stark contrast to the events in Charlottesville the weekend before. A few dozen attendees of the conservative rally were met on Boston Common by an estimated 40,000 counter-protesters. Boston police didn't allow the protesters or the media to get near the rally, so their message couldn't be heard. Many in Boston, including our guest Kevin Peterson, applauded the counter-protesters, a majority white crowd, for standing up to bigotry and hatred. But in a column for WBUR's Cognoscenti, Peterson asks Bostonians to now do something a bit more difficult, to work to counter the systemic racism that has plagued the city for decades. Kevin Peterson's founder of the Boston-based New Democracy Coalition. He's also a senior fellow at the Center for Collaborative Leadership at UMass Boston. I'm wondering if you could start by just giving me your reaction to the events of this past weekend in Boston. What did you see as we looked out at that enormous crowd of thousands of people protesting a rally that turned out to be very small indeed? What was your reaction personally? Well, I was uh, impressed and amazed by the mass of humanity who possessed goodwill, uh, goodwill in terms of opposing the voices of uh, vitriol and hate and violence uh, that descended uh, into the city of Boston. 
there was a small crowd who who in fact were were um were urging for um uh their free speech in terms of um denigrating what I call denigrating of others. It was a small crowd, but so I was so impressed by the number of people in Boston and from surrounding Boston who 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 showed up uh, to say that uh, this type of uh, hate speech was not appreciated uh, in Boston. Well, what did you think of the reaction from the police commissioner, from the mayor himself, who both essentially said what you just said? They they welcomed these these throngs of counter-protesters, and yeah. they, they really sent the message that, that they didn't want people spreading any sort of hate speech in their, in their city at all. Appropriately so. I think that Mayor Walsh uh, did a wonderful job in terms of preparing the city. Uh, his administration had worked for a couple of weeks, in fact, to prepare the city for a peaceful counter-response uh, to, the, uh, to those who are propagating uh, hate. The uh, police commissioner, Commissioner Evans in, in Boston, manned an extraordinary uh, uh, force of police officers who, who, who did the right thing. Uh, we could have easily in Boston experienced uh, what happened in Charlottesville. Uh, but thanks to the, uh, the, the wisdom and the expertise and the professionalism of, the, of the, some of the city's leaders, uh, Boston was spared uh, any tragedies. The piece that you wrote for the Cognoscenti page at WBUR, which is titled, In Boston, We March to Muffle the Voices of Hate, Now What? Um, you're, of course, asking the question, now what? And after you say what you just said to me about the, the, the reaction to this, mm-hmm. this throng of people and to the positive response from the city of Boston, right. you, you have a big but. So, so Kevin, what's the but? What's, what's the do, next I, thing Boston should do? I do have a big but. And, and, and the but is about... Um, uh, moving beyond the the marching and the um, and the mouthing of uh, support uh, for uh, equality in the city of Boston, uh, let's move towards uh, some concrete actions, uh, some real visioning for the city that really um, goes up against a great deal of inequality within the city. If you're a black male in the city of Boston, uh, you're more likely than any other male of any other cohort, age cohort. You're more likely to, to be murdered on the streets on any given year. If you're uh, a, a, a young mother living in the uh, community of Mattapan, which is about 95 percent black, you're more likely to live in poverty than uh, any, of your, any of our white cohorts across the city. Uh, black people in Boston uh, um, are disproportionately discriminated against in terms of um, uh, holding elected office because of the way uh, electoral districts, uh, the city council and, and, and state rep and state and uh, state senate seats are drawn. Those systemic barriers uh, that take the form of racism are things that are very clearly ingrained in the city mm-hmm. of Boston. That's but right. but they're also ingrained in the city where I'm sitting, Hartford, and you can say the That's same right. thing of Philadelphia and Chicago and a lot of other big cities. So I guess I'll ask you, Kevin, is there something different about Boston? I mean, we've heard from people for years that for being, as you call it, an enlightened city with an educated public that is, you know, the seat of the Yankee democracy, um, that, that there's always been a big race problem in Boston. Is it worse in your city than it is in some of these other big cities in America? I think that it is, uh, to a certain degree, it is worse. One of the 
issues historically about Boston that it never in any kind of formal way developed a civil rights movement during the 50s and the 60s as other cities around the country did. And so there was never a fully developed civil rights community that was able to, that was able to produce both the rhetoric and a policy orientation around race. So the black community historically has suffered from the lack of an advocacy class within the city uh, which would, uh, in fact, um, engage uh, the white power structure. In Al- Atlanta, for example, is a prime example of a city where the black middle class and black leadership class really blossomed. And so when you make some comparisons in terms of relative strength and presence of a black middle class in Atlanta when compared to Boston, you see that the African Americans in, in, in that city, Atlanta, uh, have done much better over time. But that's so interesting because so many people mm-hmm. in New England think, okay, Atlanta is the biggest city in the South, and the South is the place in America mm-hmm. that has historically had the biggest problems of racism. We're not racists here in Boston. We, we welcome everyone. We, we want to have immigrants come here. We, we want to live side by side by our neighbors. And I think it is bracing to many people who live in New England to hear that, say, in Atlanta might be doing it better than us. Yeah. Well, it's it's the... the Enlightenment language, um, uh, which influenced the Puritans here in Boston from uh, almost the time uh, uh, the colony of uh, Massachusetts was founded. But it never really sort of um, uh, advanced uh, along, the ra- along the lines of race. And so we, we, uh, we realized these uh, problems that still impact uh, Boston and cities like Hartford uh, and throughout New England, yeah. You you outlined some of the problems uh, of of poverty and violence mm-hmm. that are are mm-hmm. mostly borne by an African American population or an immigrant population in the city of Boston. You write that that these realities uh, reflect remarkable patterns of racism, just as worthy of protest by thousands of marchers as the hate exported from outside rabble rousers. So so why is it? Do you think that there's not in 2017 America? Why is it that there's not more of a, of a march by these 40,000 protesters against some of these things that you outline where they might show up to, you know, for yeah. a, a, an anti-neo-Nazi rally? Yeah, well, uh, two things. One is easier uh, <laughs> to, to, to get out and march and protest. It takes a, uh, an afternoon out of, your, out of your life. The real uh, effort in terms of addressing these problems require days out of your lives, weeks out of your life, um, uh, uh, months or even years out of, out of your life if you really want to be earnest and honest about um, your convictions around race. So uh, the other thing is, I think that, um, not to sound divisive, but the white community uh, has had poor leadership around addressing uh, and resolving racial issues, not only in Boston, but across the across the country. It would be Wonderful. If, uh, if, if the white community had someone uh, in leadership like Robert Kennedy uh, from 50 years ago, who was very clear in terms of his, his rhetoric and commitment in terms of, ad- in terms of addressing uh, the, uh, the issue of race. Hmm. And if that's something that's missing, perhaps the, the, the leadership vacuum in a place like Greater Boston that's been taken up has been taken up by the business community. We, we see this enormous 
tech surge. We see That's right. this growing affluence. And I, I guess I'm wondering, uh, Kevin Peterson, if that is actually contributing to some of the problems you're outlining as yeah. as so many neighborhoods that were traditionally immigrant or African-American uh, gentrify and as it becomes right. so incredibly expensive to live in the greater That's Boston right. area. Y- yeah, it exacerbates the, the, the divide. You're, you're exactly right. Um, the uh, indigenous African-American community which historically has resided in communities like Roxbury and Dorchester and Mattapan in Boston, are increasingly uh, gentrified, particularly Roxbury, where Martin Luther King visited and preached when he was uh, a student here in town. Roxbury, where uh, Malcolm X lived when he was uh, a a youngster in in Boston. Those areas are now um, being threatened uh, with... uh, a type of gentrification that is uh, forcing the uh, the original community members who are African American uh, into um, the suburbs and the experts. So uh, that is a problem. But also, the business community brings with it uh, an additional problem in terms of diversity and inclusion. Boston University, for example, one of the private nonprofit uh, universities in in the city, uh, is one of the city's largest. Uh, employers. While African Americans represent 22% of the population, less than 5% of Boston University's workforce is African American. So there's a problem of leadership in terms of the nonprofit community like Boston University, but Gillette is headquartered here in Boston. Converse uh, is headquartered here in Boston. And we also have a burgeoning innovation uh, industry here in Boston that's derivative of the research from the MIT and Harvard and, and, and other places. African-Americans, Latinos, and uh, Cape Verdeans are finding uh, few places of employment uh, in these industries. And that's, um, as we say, exacerbating the problem around race and racial division within the city. You've hinted at some of your prescriptions for for what next already, but I'd like to maybe go through them point by point. You you, you write that amongst the things that the city of Boston has to grapple with it is is first whites and people of color must find ways to share perspectives on race, history, mm-hmm. ideas, and culture. You feel like this is something that's lacking right now. It certainly is. Um, Boston, uh, like many cities throughout the country, is um, sad to say is. Uh, established uh, around an apartheid configuration. Blacks live in one place, whites live in another, and um, we seldom uh, have communications. In fact, someone could uh, live in in Roxbury, as I I mentioned earlier, and not have a conversation with a white person for uh, weeks or even longer. But we've also failed to um, identify ways to create um, uh, non-spatial opportunities for blacks and white to have dialogue, to get a sense of what our common history uh, is. Um, There have been few conversations uh, recently across the city which have focused around race. Uh, And, you know, one major issue around race that that I believe that we've never uh, rebounded from is the one concerning uh, busing in the 1970s. And and obviously, and as we've been hearing about the the, the anniversaries of various uprisings at the end of the mm-hmm. 60s across America. We, we are 
confronted with with these issues in many American cities. But I I guess I I do find it remarkable that that Boston really still hasn't come to grips with something that this busing uh, dispute, which is now 40 going on 50 years old, Kevin. That's right. That's right. Some of my contemporaries, I'm not from Boston originally, but I work with a lot of uh, people who are African-Americans and they experience busing and they still walk around with scars around how they were treated as they entered certain neighborhoods in Boston. We, stu- we still have a lot of work to do in Boston. The mayor has uh, committed to uh, engaging the city in substantive dialogue, so that's coming, and we're, we're happy that Mayor Walsh has done that. There's a foundation in the city of Boston, the Hyams Foundation, which has committed a million dollars over the last next two years to instigate or inspire dialogue and, and the sharing of common stories with regard to race. Yeah, and, and you get at that a, a bit in your next your next bullet point here. You, you talk about institutionalizing the salience of racial engagement and integration within all city public institutions. What, what do you mean by that? Well, um, it would be great, for example, for um, there, be, there to be institutionalized within our public schools from kindergarten to grade 12, a common civic curriculum that speaks to multiculturalism, that speaks to the respect for, for uh, one race towards uh, uh, another within the context of Boston's uh, uh, social, political, and cultural history. Well, lastly, you, you mm-hmm. are asking for something that, that might be a heavy lift, but it's, a, it's yeah. an interesting idea. Rewrite the city's charter in a way that so-called minorities in Boston are given fair opportunities in elections and equality in government. As I say, a, a big task, but it could have a huge impact. Communities of color represent about 55% of the city of Boston, but are only represented 30%, 35% of the Boston City Council. There should be some leveling uh, so as to allow uh, fuller expression and, deep and, and more substantive expression from those communities uh, as part of the conversation around governance. I think that's helpful. Are you largely hopeful that some of these changes that you're talking about are forthcoming anytime soon? Uh, I am. I am. Uh, There's a phrase that I learned from Dr. Cornell West, uh, who said that I am a prisoner of hope. So I I remain uh, bound to to, uh, progress for the city of Boston and bound to the idea that we can we can do better, bound to the idea that all of us collectively working together will uh, make a better city eventually. Kevin Peterson is founder of the New Democracy Coalition. His latest piece for WBUR's Cognoscenti is entitled, In Boston We March to Muffle the Voices of Hate. Now what? We've got a link to it on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, learning how to decompose the right way. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. A few times a year, people from all over the U.S. and well beyond trek to Maine to learn the science of all things rotten. The Maine Compost School has been teaching people how to turn organic trash into treasure and glop into gold for 20 years, making it the longest-running program of its kind in the U.S., Jennifer Mitchell takes us there. 
Making a good compost is not for the faint of heart. It involves lots of things that stink, several things that crawl, and trillions of things you can't even see. Careful where you step because there is some active chicken manure in some of these piles. On this hot summer day at Highmore Farm in Monmouth, flies are zinging about several shaggy piles of wood chips, eggshells, peeling, scraps and grass clippings, and chicken manure, each pile a curated blend teeming with hungry bacteria. Mark King, a compost team member from the Department of Environmental Protection, points to a pile that has a problem. Like this one right here is the wet pile. And the way you can tell is because of all the leachate around the base of it. Leachate is liquid loss of nutrients. It's also incredibly smelly. And if you have too much of it oozing from the bottom of your compost pile, then your mixture is wrong. And we do this test called the squeeze test, where you grab a handful of the material and you squeeze real hard. If water shoots out between your fingers, then it's too wet. If you open your hand and it crumbles out, it's too dry. If you open your hand and it makes a wet little ball, then it's perfect. Then King points to the Goldilocks pile. Not too wet, not too dry, it's just right. A perfect mix of nitrogen, carbon, oxygen, and water with an earthy smell that's well on its way to becoming a rich, fertile material that will help plants grow. Troubleshooting compost is just one of many lessons offered at the Maine Compost School, which has been teaching the finer points of decomposition to students from all 50 states and dozens of different countries since 1997. Um, is this a carbon source or a nitrogen source? It's the best in the world from what I hear. That's Jake Smith, who's made the trip from Nashville, Tennessee, where he works for a company that designs a type of barrel composter. Uh, we manufacture it and then sell it to the local poultry farmers there in Tennessee and Carolinas. A lot of growers down there uh, composting with their litter um, and then also their mortality. Mortality, as in farm animals that have died. It's become a major focus for both farmers and the Maine Compost School in recent years. Instructor Bill Seekins, who's retired from the Maine Department of Agriculture, says mortality is an unavoidable part of farming, and some of the old ways of disposing of those large carcasses are no longer acceptable. You know, the practice of just dragging the cow out and dump it over the stone wall and hoping that something will carry it off is being frowned on. At one time, another option would have been to send the animal to a rendering facility to be converted into other products such as tallow and bone meal. But there are fewer of those facilities now and none nearer than Massachusetts. Enter composting. Composting can be used to safely break down pretty much any organic matter, even with risky conditions present. In 2015, when the avian influenza outbreak hit the poultry industry, experts from the Maine Compost School were flown out to Iowa to teach farmers there how to safely dispose of diseased carcasses. Mark King with DEP was part of that group. We had one farm that had over 6 million birds on it. And we basically created the best recipe, and we ended up with about 16 miles of windrows. That's a 16-mile-long mound of compost, and that was at just one farm. King says in years past, all those birds would have been incinerated or buried. But incineration is not environmentally friendly, he says, and recent research indicates that diseases like avian and swine flu can survive in buried carcasses and infect groundwater systems. With composting, the biological processes neutralize pathogens, leaving nothing behind but the basic building blocks of organic matter. 
composting is also gaining popularity as a gentler, greener way to handle the remains of beloved pets, spawning at least one business in Lewiston which specializes in composting horses. In fact, the next compost school this month will focus on how to compost large animals, but that class is already filled up. So, is grass a carbon source or a nitrogen source? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the classes, held yes. two to three times per year, have always filled up. George McDonald, a team member from DEP, says students have come from 42 different countries, some with significant development challenges. A number of our students from other countries are interested in trying to better manage their solid waste stream so that the organics, which have value to soils, don't end up in the landfill. Uh, one of our students came from the Galapagos Islands and any organic that they can recover and use to improve the soils on their islands is critical. The team itself was first formed in Maine back in 1990 to help address a growing concern over how to handle organic wastes, especially from the seafood industry, where piles of reeking fish guts and lobster shells were fouling the air of seaside communities. The team has since composted everything from simple grass clippings to entire whales. The DEP's Mark King says the team recently got a call from the FBI, which studies human remains at a test location popularly known as the body farm. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to compost a body and then they wanted to have a dog go and uh, a cadaver dog and see if they could tell that there had been a body in the compost. King says when the FBI is ready to move on that project, the team will be there to help. That's Maine Public Radio's Jennifer Mitchell. All right, let's get out of the dirt and onto the water. Newport, Rhode Island is a world capital for sailing, and this week it's been hosting a first in the sailing world, the J-Class World Championships. J-Class yachts are rare, and they're huge. Picture a sailboat about as long as a basketball court racing around Newport Harbor. Rhode Island Public Radio's John Bender went to take a look. J-Class boats are different from the high-tech carbon fiber catamarans used in modern-day racing. These long wooden yachts are a throwback to the America's Cup races of the early 20th century. And at their time, in the 1920s and 30s, they were the absolute bleeding edge of yacht design, of crewing ability, of sail design. That's Andy Green, a highly sought-after race announcer in the sailing world, walking along the docks at the Newport shipyard where several J-Class boats are moored. On the left here is Topaz, and a lot of these boats come up for the summer for the season of racing, and it's been that way for a hundred years. These boats are refurbished originals or new constructions built using Jazz Age designs. Today, there are only 11 official J-Class boats in existence. Six of them are here in Newport, an extremely rare event. To give you a sense of scale, these slender boats are longer than a tennis court. They're sleek and sit low to the water. And the idea of the design is there's a huge overhang at the front and at the back. And what happens is when the boats put their sails up and they tip over, the whole length of the boat ends up being in the water. It's a dramatic sight, a massive boat leaning at a 45-degree angle towards the water as its sails catch the wind. A boat can look like it's about to capsize. It probably would if not for the crew members who must run to the opposite side of the boat to counterbalance the vessel. You've never seen anything like this before. Sailor Ken Reed will be on one of those boats. He's skippering the J-class yacht Hanneman. This is going to be a scene, six of these boats on the starting line, 
I don't know, it, if all of a sudden a bunch of hot air balloons flew, flew over the harbor, you'd stop and go, my goodness, look at that. That is wild. Well, it, it's got kind of that, even if you're not a sailor, it's got that same aura to it. J-class boats present a unique challenge to racers like Reed, who typically compete on zippy carbon fiber catamarans. So the first thing for a guy like me is I have to adapt to sailing a boat that maneuvers very slowly. You, you turn the wheel and essentially you count to five Mississippi before anything starts happening. Speed is not what makes this race dramatic. The boats will only reach a top speed of about 12 knots, around 13 miles per hour. The real spectacle is the size of these boats and the dozens of people it takes to race them. It's real choreography. We have what we call the playbook, and it is a full-blown playbook of every single maneuver, who does what, who touches what, who pulls this rope, who, who lets this one go, who raises, who lowers. Reed says it's strenuous, athletic work, and there's the real possibility a sailor could fall overboard. Then there's the force exerted by the wind, the ocean, and the crew physically pulling on the boat as it moves through the water. We're not naive enough to understand that when you're talking about the loads on these boats and massive loads, that people get hurt. If, if you're not in the right spot at the right time, people can get hurt. So we also take the safety aspect of it very seriously. In a much smaller boat, race announcer Andy Green motors out of Newport Harbor. We're going past Goat Island, and on the left is Fort Adams, and in front of us is the Pell Bridge. So a couple of the races for the J-boats will start right here in the bay. On race days, no one will be allowed out here. In fact, smaller boats will be on the water clearing the course for the J-boats. But Green says spectators will still get a great view from land. It's really about seeing them in person. It's seeing the power, the majesty, the sail area, the 35 crew on each of the boats, seeing them try to maneuver around each other. Skipper Ken Reed says events like these are an economic boon to the tourism industry. Listen, this isn't football, baseball, hockey, uh, basketball. This isn't going to fill up a stadium every day. But, but I think that's thinking about it too specific. That's blinders on. We do fill up a stadium every day. It happens to be called Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island Sound. It's full every day of people, of people that not just live here, but people visiting here. Sailing may not have the mass popular appeal of football or baseball, but perhaps no other sport showcases the natural beauty and power of the ocean in quite the same way. That's John Bender reporting. If you want to check out what these boats look like, go to nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from WBUR. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music. Go to toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you enjoyed this week's show, follow our Facebook page at Next New England. We've got stories there from around the region, videos, and a lot more. It's facebook.com slash next. New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, empowered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.